whenever you have any relationship issue, whether it's uh, you're, you don't know what to do on your date, you don't know what to text your date, you don't know how to interpret a text, you're struggling in your relationship, uh, you, you don't know if you wanna get married, um, you don't know if you wanna break up, you have broken up but you wanna get back together. So any kind of relationship issue that you have, we're basically your hotline 24 seven, where you can connect to a qualified certified relationship coach who actually knows what they're talking about, who's talked to thousands of people just like you, who has a playbook for your exact situation. And you can get, uh, you know, very personalized contextual help. No, someone's opinion may contradict yours. Where's my friend Alan? It's all about your perspective. Who are we and what is the nature of this reality? What's up, everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakyan. We are now going to be talking about Relationship Hero. We have Liron Shapira joining us on the show. Hi, Liron. Hey, Alan. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, great to be here. I'm super excited for this episode. For those who don't know Liron's background, he's co-founder and CEO of Relationship Hero, which is the number one relationship coaching service in the world. They have over 100 full-time relationship coaches available 24-7 via phone or online chat. And you can find the links in the bio below, relationshiphero.com. Also, Liron's LinkedIn and Twitter profile. Also, of course, as we have Ori as our co-producer, you are his brother with the same last name. Yes. Yeah, and it's so fun having you here and hanging out together. Let's jump in with one of our favorite questions we like asking our guests. What are your thoughts on the direction of our world? All right. Well, in my own opinion, I think the direction of the world is good. Um, you know, it's uh, if you've read Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now, uh, he really details all these things that are really going the right way. And there's, uh, you know, there's a really good TED talk by uh, Hans Rosling uh, that I recommend checking out about, uh, you know, how all these countries are getting lifted out of poverty. Everybody's getting food to eat. Um, he makes a big distinction between making like $1 a day and $4 a day. And after that, making like $100 a day. So you're really seeing a lot of movement toward people just like having less horrible shit in their lives and just like more of having like a decent life. That's like a major trend we're seeing. And I think it gets lost in people who are like complaining or bitching about uh, like little things like, oh, you know, we're having privacy issues online. Like, yeah, there's all these little problems, but you have to keep it in a sense of perspective of like, hey, uh, do you not have diarrhea every single day? That's like a big improvement. So I don't think I'm saying anything new here, but I just try to keep things in perspective that I do think we're overall on the right track. Yes, yes, okay. So basic needs being met for people around the world, enabling them to have clean water, I, meals to eat every day, less disease, better health, better education. Mm -hmm. These are critical, absolutely critical, and flourishing is increasing in all those respects around the world. Simultaneously, a lot of the major technology challenges that we face now uh, are of unprecedented scales and just have not been uh, dealt with in any sort of capacities in the past at mm -hmm. the same levels as what we're experiencing now. So maybe what would be some of your key like points or maybe like an essential 
uh, skill or advice that you would recommend young people and adults to embody as we go into the exponential technology age? Mm, yeah, what skills should you embody? Um, I think there's thinking tools that are helpful. So, um, you know, just understand how to analyze things with a sense of perspective. So like, uh, you know, what I was saying about the world is like, you know, can you zoom out from the random discussion you're having on Twitter and, and look at, you know, an actual statistical trend um, that's global scale? Keep that in mind. And then in terms of technology, like, yeah, I, I do think that just getting educated in technology is like a powerful tool and it's getting harder and harder to insist on doing things the old way, right? So you have to be like adaptive to change. Um, yeah, I think that's the good general approach. Yes, yes. I liked that a lot. The It's likely one of the most critical aspects of worldview development is to be able to uh, both zoom out uh, into this macro perspective on viewing the entire planet and 8 billion nodes moving around and seeing how they're engaging with each other, like we were talking about people getting uplifted with their basic needs, and simultaneously going into the micro and identifying, um, the in a scientific way, identifying what's happening at the atomic level, uh, the cellular level, but also... Um, seeing what's happening at the human level in a one-on-one eye-to-eye knowing how to practice emotional intelligence emotion regulation growth mindset perspective taking there's so many of the different complex nuances interpersonally too to develop so these this phenomenon of scales and really being able to kind of go between them is such an important skill yep Liron, how did you first get interested in computer science when you're growing up uh, well, I had a computer uh, in my room. It was like an old Apple SE desktop computer, and I was just clicking around on it. I just loved it. You know, I, I loved all the logic of it, and uh, you know, stuff would happen when you click, and it all had like its own logic, and it was you know, really had all these details. It was just like this very fun game, right? And I even remember before that as like a five or six year old just having all these toys, and the toys would all be like kind of boring, right? Like there wasn't too much you can do with them, and like. But some of the toys would have like speakers and uh, some of the toys would have like maybe a couple lights on them. But then the computer was great. It was like so much uh, richer in terms of, you know, stuff it could do. So that was like my first uh, computer memory. And then uh, when I was around uh, nine, then I started learning, uh, you know, I started seeing places where you could type some code. And I, I checked out like a math book from the library and it told me about writing some code. So I got my hands on a, a basic editor, you know, the programming language basic. So I've just started tooling around writing my own code. And it was just uh, amazingly fun, right? It really like clicked with, uh, you know, it's kind of like I was born to have some sort of a hobby like that, right? And so if I wasn't around in like the 90s, if I was around like a thousand years ago, I probably would have been like making stuff out of wood, right? And that would have been a lot less fun than uh, computers. <laughs> All right. So what was it about? Did, did you Did you feel when you were younger also the the sheer amount of power that you had being able to work with computer logic and just what you could tweak and how you could manipulate uh, binary code to output whatever you wanted and just, did you feel the power of that at a young age? Um, I definitely felt a lot of the power. Yeah, it definitely felt pretty awesome. But I also think that intuitively for me, there was always, there was like a disconnect between the stuff I was doing. Like I never imagined myself that serious because I was just a kid. And for me, like the real world, I imagined it as so different, right? So like the grownups making like the computer work, making airplanes work, right? Writing the software that people actually use in real life. 
I felt that was like a separate world and what I was doing was always going to be only a toy. So mm. it really mm. took all the way until my adult life where I started working for like a real company and it's like, okay, well the software they're doing isn't really that different than the software I'm doing. Like there's, there's definitely some tricks mm. to make things work better, but um, you know, there's no disconnect. Like there's, you know, there's a spectrum, right, of more and more serious software. And that's actually something that I wish I knew more as a kid of like, you can really just, you know, you can play at any league you want to play in. And what were some of those things that you were building out? You went to UC Berkeley for computer science. What were some of the things you're building out throughout your trajectory? Um, sure, yeah. So as a kid, I just started with games, so like random games that were uh, that I didn't expect to have any impact on the world, just like, you know, trivia games. And like, like I made a solitaire game, right, which was like no better than any other solitaire game, but it was fun to make. Um, and then in high school, I made some physics simulations. So I'd learn a concept like, uh, you know, gravity and I'd make like a little simulation of a ball falling by programming in the acceleration. Um, so I was doing all that stuff and, you know, nobody was really using my software. It was just like me making it for myself. Um, and then it really took until I, I got my first real job uh, before I was making software that was actually going out in the world. Okay, okay. And so then that was in, what year was that, 2008? 2008, yeah. With Slide. Yeah, I started working at Slide, okay. and I, I worked on a game called Super Poke Pets. So, like, if you've heard of, like, throwing a sheep, so that was the company that made that, and, and you could, like, take care of the sheep as your pet. So I was writing some of the code to, like, buy stuff for your pet. So it's really not a very serious application, but it was my first exposure to, you know, real people using stuff that I have, uh, you know, influence on, and we did have, like, millions of users. Okay, so the code that you were then deploying had already been at the scale of millions of people using it. Exactly, and, and for me, that's something I really enjoy is, you know, I could just be typing some code on a computer, and next thing you know, we hit the deploy button, and you've got millions of people right, running it on their own laptops. So it's, it's really a, a pretty big influence. It's kind of like you're controlling a, a robot army, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so then I, start, I guess I started getting that sense of power. Yes, yes, okay. And then... What about then with that sense of power plus this passion for entrepreneurship, where, how, did that, how did those things collide for your endeavor into Quixie? Um, sure, yeah. So, you know, I wanted to do something big and interesting with my life, right? I, I wanted to make an impact or just, uh, you know, see, basically see what I could do, right? See what the, the limit was of uh, what kind of job I could have or what kind of success I could have. Um, so when I started Quixie, uh, my thought was like, well, yeah, you know, I've, I'd heard of startups, right? I'd been reading all about uh, like Paul Graham's writing and following other people's startups. And I was living in San Francisco, which is kind of like the heart of the startup scene. So I was like, okay, let's do this. Like it's possible to just start a company. And if you get enough people using it, you get enough customers, you got some investors, you could make the next Google, right? Like you could um, really, you could change the world basically, right? Like you can make the next uh, big thing that uh, that is a big part of a lot of people's lives and kind of be like just a big piece a big piece of the world basically um big new piece so that was kind of the appeal of it to me okay and then where did the idea for what you wanted to build come from yeah the idea of quick uh, my co-founder at the time tomer had the original idea and he was saying uh, well there's so many apps coming out we just noticed there's a lot of apps coming out and uh, the the search for the app in the app stores was horrible and uh, all these developers were basically getting shafted because they'd work hard on an app, they'd launch it, and they'd just get zero users. Mm. And then how would you guys drive more users to? 
Yeah, so it was a pretty vague idea, but the idea was basically like, well, we'll just make a search engine so that on the user side, they just type anything and we connect them to the right app instantly right when it launches. So we saw kind of a marketplace failure. So the vision was to fix that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then why then for uh, people that were going onto the Play Store or onto the Apple App Store, um, why would then people um, use Quixie? Yeah, well, I think you've pinpointed uh, one of the flaws in the model, right, is we needed a whole distribution channel, right? Because if a user is accustomed to going and searching in the Apple Store, why would they go out of their way? So we had a bunch of ideas for it at various times. So we explored everything from like, let's make an app on the user's home screen and the app is a better search than their search bar. Or let's integrate with mm -hmm. maybe not Apple, but like with, you know, third party operating systems, you know, Google's Android. There's a lot of third party Android distributions. Let's integrate into the search bar in that. Um, so we explored a bunch of things, but you have pinpointed one of the, the basic flaws in the original model of Quixie. And, you know, it was ultimately Quixie failed. So, and that was one of the flaws. In general, pairing up people that are seeking for the information that they want uh, more effectively is really important. So it's yeah. good that you guys were endeavoring into trying to take on that grand challenge. And that includes things like natural language processing, which is really hard. If I type something into a search bar, you have to parse and connect those words to a catalog of apps that also have those key words that are linked to them. And yeah. this, is, this is tough this is computer science. For sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I also really liked what you guys did um, called the Quixie Challenge, which I thought was really interesting. I think it's so applicable to um, the current uh, market that mm -hmm. we're doing things like X prizes and stuff like that. So tell us about the Quixie yeah. challenge. Sure. Yeah. So the, the Quixie challenge was uh, our solution to the problem of just how do you find good engineering talent? Because when you're in the Bay area, it's, it's really such a scramble to get good engineering talent. There's so much competition and the salaries are absolutely skyrocketing. Um, I mean, the, the, the compensation, just to give you a sense of the salary is the compensation package that an entry level engineer can get here in 2019 it's literally three times, like 300% of, of what I could get when I was starting out 10 years ago in 2009. So 10 years, triple the compensation package, that's insane, right? And like in the meantime, the average American's income uh, has gone up like maybe 10%, right? It's barely moved um, compared to 300%. So it's not typical for this economy how, how valuable programmers are becoming today. It's, it's absolutely insane. Um, so in such a hard market, right? So I was, the Quixie Challenge was more like in uh, 2011, 2012. So it was just at the beginning of this exponential uh, growth in, in programmer competitiveness. But we were just thinking like, look, recruiters are charging 20% of the programmer's first year salary. And the programmer is making six figures. So we're talking 20 grand, even 30 grand uh, of recruiter commission. So we just asked ourselves, well, is there any way that we can spend 20 grand more effectively to get more than one good programmer? Um, and so we came up with the idea of like, well, when somebody's in college, 20 grand is an unthinkably high amount of money. Even $100 is a lot of money uh, for a, you know, a poor college student who doesn't have a job yet. So why don't we just incentivize people uh, to you know, give them something to do for $100? Um, so that was one of the ideas. And then we combined it with another idea, which is like, hey, when I'm interviewing somebody to be a good programmer, I actually know a lot in the first minute. Like yeah. I can actually, you can give me one minute and I'm already pretty far along in the interview. Like I don't have a final decision, but I could probably start eliminating people in one minute and maybe not one minute, maybe five minutes, right? But one minute is like an exaggerated version of it. So we combine the ideas and we say, let's give them a one minute challenge where if they succeed, they get a hundred dollars and it's lead gen, right? It's lead generation mm -hmm. for our interview pipeline. 
Um, and it did in fact work as expected. It was a pretty big success. We hired like seven candidates off of it. Uh, we paid a lot less than 20,000 per candidate. We paid like $5,000 per candidate, all things equal. So we'd have to give out like maybe 50 of these prizes. Uh, but it also, it really got Quixie's name out there when every college student was like, this is the best way that I can make $100 in one minute of my time. So it was kind of a hack that combined together you know, some elements of the situation that uh, it was kind of an arbitrage, right? Like the $20,000 down to $100. Yeah, yeah. It's following a model that is picking up a lot of steam, this, this incentive model. You come out and, uh, and either you can crowdsource ideas and pay people uh, f as a as a prize um, for the best ideas that people are crowdsourcing anywhere from you know a hundred thousand to a million dollars, um, you can also do things like filter for lead generation for top talent at just a hundred or five hundred or a thousand bucks and see if they can solve a, an engineering challenge or see if they can solve a design challenge or an ops challenge or a philosophy challenge whatever it is nowadays um, and like you said within a minute or five minutes so how can you really refine an interview process uh, down to the most profound questions that can give you the most insight about if the candidate is best and most right. yeah, efficient for, for the role. So let's talk about the transition then in 2017 to Relationship Hero. Co-founder and CEO, you guys were part of Y Combinator Summer 2017 batch. So why Relationship hero what is it mm -hmm. and how did the idea come up let's talk about it sure yeah so relationship hero is uh, a coaching service a relationship coaching service so the way you use it is uh, whenever you have any relationship issue whether it's uh, your you don't know what to do on your date you don't know what to text your date you don't know how to interpret a text you're struggling in your relationship uh, you you don't know if you want to get married um, you don't know if you want to break up you have broken up, but you want to get back together. So any kind of relationship issue that you have, we're basically your hotline 24 seven, where you can connect to a qualified certified relationship coach who actually knows what they're talking about, who's talked to thousands of people just like you, who has a playbook for your exact situation. And you can get, uh, you know, very personalized contextual help. Uh, and you can also schedule sessions. You can, um, you know, have like an hour long session and you can learn stuff and apply that in your relationship. So that's the use case for a relationship coach. Before Relationship Hero, that industry of relationship coaching, that segment of the market, uh, it was virtually non-existent, right? It's like, can you name one famous relationship coach or relationship coaching company besides Relationship Hero? Mm. Mostly just, yeah, coaches that are uh, that work with one-on-one -on -one clients that charge like a hundred bucks an hour or whatever. Exactly right, like and, they, and they don't really—they're not necessarily trustworthy. If you know, you might have you might like try to go on Yelp to you know to see if they're any good, and you know you have to schedule a physical appointment. So there was something very weird about this industry because it was like a tiny industry, virtually non-existent. And then you look at how many people need relationship coaching. You could probably list a few off the top of your head, right? There's mm -hmm. people who are always uh, talking to their friends about their relationship problems. And I myself was somebody who needed relationship coaching because I was using a lot of dating apps, right? I was using Tinder, Bumble, OkCupid. I was using all these dating apps and I would see this white screen and it would always uh, kind of sap my energy looking at this white screen because I'm like, what the hell am I supposed to say, right? I'm trying to get the date. Like, why can't I just get the date? Why do I have to like, type stuff in a white screen where I don't really care. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't really care to like randomly shoot the breeze about, uh, you know, a random sports or like, uh, 
you know, what do people talk about, right? Like interests, animals, just like have these random conversations when I'm just trying to get a date, like what's going on, right? So I was really failing to use Tinder or like understand uh, how the conversations are supposed to work. So I know what it's like to just want to get a date uh, or, or want to, you know, have a good conversation and just not know how the game is played basically. So that was my own uh, original experience uh, where I'd go to my co-founder Lior and I'd ask him to help me out like, hey, what do I say? And him coaching me was the first spark where I'm like, maybe I'm not the only guy in the world who is a little confused in my dating life. Mm -hmm. Okay. So immediately uh, there's this, there's this uh, both a use case for yourself with your own sort of realization that, that there's, there's going to be a lot of people around the world. Now we have democratized uh, information technology so now we have the devices in our pockets so it's much easier for us to connect mm -hmm. with a relationship coach across a myriad of examples that you gave it can be about the first message on the screen or it can be about if you want to marry the person or break up with them or you know maybe you're on your fifth date maybe it's something else about intimacy or something else about um, emotional relating. There's so many different ways that you would be able to use a relationship coach. And so, okay, so you saw an important market and you saw no one in the market yet. Right. Okay. And so then you guys decided to build a tech solution to solve this. Okay. So then now let's talk about how um, you have about a hundred coaches right now on the platform. So available 24 seven. That's right. Okay, phone or messaging. Exactly, yeah. Okay, so I can call in and have mm -hmm. a quick conversation. I can just be messaging back and forth. It's, yep. it's via an app. Um, there, it's actually, uh, you don't even have to use our app. You can uh, visit our website, you can text us, you can call us. So it's kind of like messaging a friend. You know, you just, you, you just send them a message or call them. So it's a contact that I save in my phone potentially, like relationship yeah. your contact. That's that's probably the most convenient way to use this is just text us the same way or call us as you call a friend. Yeah. And then, so then immediately then you link me up with one of the available coaches. Maybe I build a relationship with maybe Sarah or something. And then exactly she's right. usually the one that would come in and, and work with me if she's available at that time. That's true. But that said, if it's an ongoing situation, uh, most of our clients benefit from having multiple coaches because it's not like we're just a marketplace that helps you find some other coach. We actually train and certify all the coaches ourselves. So we can guarantee that if you're working with multiple coaches, you're still getting quality, consistent coaching. So you're still, you know, they're learning from the same playbooks. Um, they're giving you compatible advice and they're here for you 24 seven because you don't have to, mm. you know, wake the same coach up whenever you're awake and they might be sleeping. Okay. So all of the coaches go through relationship hero training. So they all mm. work with the same playbook. So you guys have developed yep. a proprietary playbook for exactly. Yeah. So not only did we notice a gap in the market, right? So not only is there no relationship coaching company besides relationship hero, if you look at academia, right, if you look at who's researching what fields, there's not really a field of research for what we call applied uh, relationship skills. You know what I'm saying? So, so, so you'll have psychologists, right? You'll have people researching into mental health, but you don't have people researching, hey, what is the most effective tactic uh, to restore a breakup? You, you see what I'm saying? It's, it's an applied science. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody's researching it. So we simultaneously have to be like, okay, let's have people in our company 
essentially do, do the research and write up these guides and test them. And then other people in our company, you know, be the coaches. Let's do both. Let's do the, the research and also the commercial application. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So out of the myriad of social dynamics that exist in social situations, you are building out a catalog, a database of the, uh, pro- of the possibilities, the approaches that you can take to each one. Let's say, you know, type A is to restore the breakup, like you were saying. Maybe type B is the first date. Mm-hmm. Um, that type of thing. And so let's say for type B on the first date, you have, you know, option A through option Q or whatever of the different approaches that you can take in their uh, efficacy levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how their success levels, but right. then there's always different psychometric profiles with for the people. So maybe one person wants you to come in aggressively and ask for the first date. Another mm-hmm. person wants you to talk more about their cat before mm-hmm. you ask them on the first date. So how do you guys, do you guys have any machine learning that you're putting into play here to be able to figure out if op- option, option uh, M is working really well for a specific psychometric profile and so you're running these patterns mm-hmm. and you're analyzing them to optimize? Yeah, so right now we don't have AI doing any of the actual coaching. Like, so uh, it's all like human wisdom basically and uh, the kind of insights we get are like, well, we, uh, we had this playbook and we tried it on a bunch of clients and we had this hypothesis and it has been proven out 80% of the time. So it's more like humans doing science, more like that than like, oh, the machine figured everything out and here it just spits out the solution and just take it because it's optimal. Um, so it's not like that. We actually think that in terms of what AI can do, there's a lot of fields where AI can come in and start replacing humans, but relationship coaching is a relatively hard problem for AI. Uh, a lot of the most subtle things about human interaction are our relationships, right? Like a romantic mm-hmm. relationship is a very complicated dance. Uh, a lot of the intelligence that's in the human brain is dedicated to that, uh, those social skills. Um, so, you know, it's going to be one of the last things that computers figure out how to do better than us. Mm. Mm. Okay. Interpersonal dynamics, the nuance of social communication. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's been, that's been uh, up there in one of the last frontiers mm-hmm. of, uh, of super intelligence of general intelligences. Right. Okay. So, okay. So then, um, let's talk about the different like combinatorics that occur. Cause I think a lot of people are experiencing stuff that's uh, in the same domain as what you were explaining about your own issue sure. that you had. Okay, so you have this blank screen and mm-hmm. you don't know what to first message. Um, there's obviously, again, this word combinatorics. You can message something, how are you? You can yeah. message hello. You can message a smiley face. Right. What are you doing? There's more possible conversations than grains of sand on all the beaches. Exactly. So then what uh, is most effective as the first mm-hmm. message? Yeah, so if you're just sending a cold message to somebody, the first message, um, you wanna get their interest, you wanna ideally spark a positive emotion, and then you wanna make it easy and fun for them to reply, right? Because I mean, think about what you want, right? These are all directly related to your goals, right? Your goal is basically to see if you're compatible and to see if you guys can have a good interaction together. So this is basically you manufacturing the thing that you want. If you want a good conversation, well, say something that right off the bat sparks a good reaction. Now, from their side, it's a good conversation. So one thing that's usually good in the first message is to include some kind of compliment, you know, a genuine compliment. And it doesn't have to be like 
a brilliantly inspired poetic compliment. It can literally just be like, I like your pics. <laughs> it's like four words. Mm -hmm. uh, but you throw that in um, and then you, uh, you, you throw in something else that uh, maybe you've observed about their profile, which gets their interest. Um, it's nice if the... If she has a photo with a dog, you might want to say that's a great picture of you with your dog. Yeah, exactly. Like it's a great picture of you with your dog. And then if you ask a question that's like specific to your dog, like, uh, you know, how do you clean up all the shedding or whatever? I mean, that mm -hmm. might, you know, maybe that's not the most interesting topic. Where do you like going with your dog? You know, stuff like that. What, yeah, yeah, where yeah. do you like going? Um, and then now that's a good start, but I would tweak that question a little bit because, it, yeah. because that gets to the last criterion, which is you want it to be easy and fun to answer. Mm. So the problem with where do you like going is it's, uh, it's what I call a non-specific uh, question. So Oh, it leaves so many possible answers. It's harder for them to reply then. Exactly. So the okay. problem with that question, uh, and this is very subtle, uh, and I've never seen this taught any, anywhere else, but we teach it at Relationship Hero, which is in order for uh, the girl you're messaging to answer that question, she basically has to give you a specific answer. So she starts having to give you specific detail from your life. Like, well... I like to go to a dog park and there's like a section with small dogs that he likes to play with. So you're expecting a specific detailed answer, but you yourself didn't provide much specific detail in your question. So that is actually a hint that you're sending a bad message if you're expecting more specificity out of the reply than you're providing. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, and it's related to a concept in uh, improvisational theater, you know, improv, mm -hmm. where if you're a character on an improv, it's kind of weak to be like, what are we doing? Uh, right where it's stronger to be like, uh, hey, you know, uh, mix in some more chocolate for our, for this candy bar. You know, like it's it's considered good improv to be like throwing in detail and painting the scene compared to just mm. putting the burden on the other person to paint the scene. So there's mm. something analogous if you're trying to manufacture a good conversation on a dating app, you should really provide uh, a lot of specific details that the other person can work with. So we can tweak that question and we can be like, hey, your dog looks pretty small. Uh, do you have to stay? Do you have to stay with the small dog area in the dog park? Because suddenly you're oh, like being sure. so specific with your question, and then the other person can be like, "Haha, no, sometimes he can play with bigger dogs." And suddenly the conversation it feels like it has this momentum, and the secret to that is the specificity. Okay, okay, I like the comparison here to what is known from uh, improvisational mm -hmm. theater because. Um, I myself uh, really enjoyed my time in uh, in debate and in uh, speech and improv practices. Yeah. Those are super duper fun. Exactly. And even doing stand-up comedy, these are very important things to practice in life. And so this one's super relatable, I think, for a lot of us is, um, especially those that like to practice humor, is you can be like, why don't you wear your rainbow socks today? And you'll be like, because my rainbow socks were in the washing machine or whatever. And so, you know, I'm, we're opening up a, a conversation in a fun uh, dialectic manner rather than uh, maybe closing it off uh, right away with a very, very specific um, question. Okay, okay. So then what would then a... Um, what like let's go again with some of the um, higher like efficacy strategies for those first moments you know you said you want to make it uh, relatable you want to make it easy to reply to you want to mm -hmm. make them feel like they're having fun yep okay yep you want and it's, it is kind of funny because it is I mean 
Look, for the, the, way, the way we teach it, I mean, I, I use the word manufacture. Like you want to manufacture a good conversation. You want to contrive a good conversation, but it's still better than saying something lame. You know what I'm saying? So like I, I might sometimes, back when I was dating, I might send a text that it took me like 10 minutes to think of the perfect text. But when the other person reads it, right, the reaction they get is like, oh, this conversation is so fun and spontaneous. Oh, Oh, interesting. Right. And, and when yeah. I say it now, it's like, wow, like it almost sounds like I'm a creep, right? Well, I don't think I'm a creep because like, look at stand-up comedy, right? Like the stand-up comic, it's like, he, he looks really cool, right? If you watch a stand-up comic, but the stuff he's telling you is like so memorized, right? Like the most casual gesture he makes is so memorized. So there's some times when your best strategy is to be a little contrived, right? To give the other person that spontaneous feeling. And I think one of those times is you know, the beginning of online dating. If there's somebody that you really like, you really want to maximize your chances with them, then I think that you should uh, think hard and, and send them a text that you work hard on, even if uh, it comes off as casual. Mm-hmm. That's a really good comparison to even the, the smallest gestures and the stand-up routines are, have, been, have had hours and hours of practice mm-hmm. um, to make them, uh, for the audience, make them feel like it's a spontaneous. Exactly. Effect. You're laughing. Yeah. Like he, you know, a lot of times the stand-up comic, you'll think that he just thought of it and it's really secretly part of his routine. So the reason the stand-up comic, a good stand-up comic drills what he's saying like crazy, the reason is because it's high stakes, right? If you want to be at the top of your game and be like, you know, a stand-up comic who's drawing crowds, you know, you better have the best routine you have. And similarly with texting, if you only give yourself five seconds to toss off every text, you know, you could be decent, right? You could, but you're just not going to be as good as if you like, you know, give it your best shot and take a little more time. Okay. So let's say again, we have some, maybe a picture um, of, uh, of, of her that's, you know, hiking maybe on a nice trail or something with a nice sunset view or whatnot. Okay. Yeah. So what do we say in the, in the mm-hmm. first message? Definitely. So I'd throw in something like, I like your pics or any compliment. And the reason is just because, and you know, I'm imagining a guy talking to a girl hypothetically. So the reason is just because you get a compliment and it's like, you know, everybody likes compliments. And um, just as a little tangent, a lot of guys are like, oh, don't compliment too much because then you come off needy. That's actually not true. Coming off needy is bad. And a lot of the guys will compliment in a needy way. Mm. But as long as you're just genuinely giving a compliment and there's enough other things you're doing that aren't needy, then it's perfect because who doesn't like getting a compliment, right? (laughs) Compliments are great. Um, So you start with a compliment and then you throw in, so you mentioned like hiking on a trail and there's a sunset. So Mm -hmm. the key to that, you know, most people would ask a generic question, right? Just like, where are you hiking? Where was that hike? Of yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is, uh, it breaks the rule of like, oh, so you want them to tell you something specific and you just ask where. That's not fair. That's not going to make for a good conversation. You're, okay. you're actually killing the momentum when you do that. Okay. Um, so the key is, what can we inject where we're bringing specificity that wasn't there already? So like some random specific thing that might have to do with like hiking on a trail. So let's think about that. Um, let's see. A random specific Yeah, a random, like, basically think thing. about improv, right? Imagine you're doing uh, an improv for hiking on a trail. Like, basically some <laughs> random thing has to happen to make the scene interesting. Right? Okay, so, so go, yeah, go ahead. So I'm just thinking, like, so what other stuff can you do when you're hiking on a trail and it's the sunset? Oh, okay. Okay, so there's something about maybe the trees or there's something... Yeah, or anything. Like, just a random idea I had is, like... Uh, I've what, climbed that tree in the picture before or whatever. Sure. I mean, that if, if you can actually, I've climbed that tree in the picture before. I mean, if, if you really have, sure, that could be interesting. But, but even if you say that, I would probably mention some specific detail. Like, I like how there's like this fat branch on the back. You know, I've climbed that. 
but that's that's not really plausible but that would be like the kind of thing where you're bringing in specificity you're talking about the okay. fat branch um another idea i just had is like um so what kind of trail mix are you packing checks you know where you're just like <laughs> you're just like really specifically asking about the trail mix it's what? like a valid it's a That's valid so question. funny what kind of trail mix are you packing exactly because <laughs> the thing about it is you've already given her the compliment right so she's already uh you know flattered and now the question it's a ridiculous question but uh, it's easy and fun to answer yeah she's just like oh yeah she's just like uh, I don't pack trail mix on my hikes. I eat pack fruit. Yeah, or, exactly. She's like, or, I was eating a banana. And then you talk about the banana. And it's like... It's, what would you say back to the banana? If she's like, I only like to eat a banana, um, I'd, then I'd, I'd, I might say like, uh, is it uh, uh, organic or, uh, or or do you go for, um, you know, the are you okay with GMO? Like, I just, I just say that because it's, it's a specific... Like, here's the thing. She's not going to delete the conversation, right? She's going to give you the answer. You know what I'm saying? So okay, so you're adding specificity and leaving her with a more uh, open, or not too open, but uh, kind of actually more of a closed well, answer. The the thing is, it's more like I'm creating momentum. You're creating momentum. That's what you've been saying, right? Okay. Because when when she's reading these uh, texts, she's thinking like, uh, "This is ridiculous." But let, is me, ridiculous. let me just start typing this the answer. This is funny. This she's is getting ridiculous. going. She's gonna start typing the answer. Okay, and then you go, but organic or, or GMO and she says organic yeah she'll be like oh I, I only eat organic and then you know? what do you say to the um so I don't want to like go down a rabbit hole of the banana right but now the thing is I've already accomplished my objective of starting the momentum okay. so now we have momentum so now what maybe you ask a new question that's uh yeah with this momentum yeah and there's other things I could do so she's like I only eat organic I might I know a good organic restaurant maybe we should go sometime I, that's so that that brings in other concepts, which is I think. <laughs> What's the other concept that we just brought? So in? that's that's another mistake most guys make is they'll like get like a, a little bit of rapport, right? Where like they oh. something and the girl's like, yeah, and they're like, I know, let's go on a let's date. Let's go on a date <laughs> <laughs> right away. <laughs> so so like I, I got this nailed. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. this is another principle we teach, which is like, look, uh, if you're a guy talking to a girl, girls get a lot of matches, and so if yeah. you're inviting her out on a date right away that will work if she's already very attracted to you. So like, let's say that the girl yeah, is looking yeah. at your pictures and she's thinking like, oh, this guy's my type, you know, he's yeah. got a dog, I like dogs. So if the girl's already sold on you, then fine, no problem. Yeah, but yeah. a more common situation is that the girl's not sold on you yet and the conversation you're having is a big part of how she's gonna get sold on you. Yes. So if you just have like one little thing where you both have a dog and then you ask her out, the problem is, you know, she's got a hundred other guys where they also have one little thing Right, so she mm -hmm. could be like, so she might be like, yeah, sure, let's go on a date, and that's where you get the flake, right? So you get a lot of girls flaking, and that's that's a big problem today is girls will flake. So if you want to have a non-flaky date, you really have to show her why you're actually a better, you know, date. It's you're a better investment for her, right? Because you want her to get ready for the date, you want her to come out on the date. You know, there's a safety issue, right? She's meeting a stranger guy that she's never met before. She has to go yeah, to a location. Fair. She might be tired, fair, yeah, right? She yeah. has to like, you know, put her makeup on, change for the date. Right, so you're asking so much of her, and all you've given her is like, you know, Two nice messages. banana, right? Yeah, like yeah, that's, yeah, it's just yeah. not enough. There's an asymmetry. Like she's okay. seen your pictures, she's seen you say like a couple of good messages. It's not enough for her to make a big investment. Okay, so uh, having maybe uh, a couple days of back and forth conversation where she feels like uh, you're witty and you're also her type and all this other kind of, um, additional information could, yeah. could really up your chances. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so the main takeaway is, I mean, the thing is, whatever you're hoping to accomplish on a date, right? You want to feel each other out and show each other that you have a good time. The thing is, you can actually start doing a lot of that over the text. Like, you can, you can basically, you can get extra credit. You can, you can accomplish more than most people accomplish. Like, most people just think that they can do nothing on text, and they have, the game begins when you meet in person. Mm-hmm. But really, you can start getting pretty far over text. I mean, some people have entire online relationships. I'm not saying that you should go do that. But I am saying that like whatever charm you were going to show on the date, just start showing it over text. It's the same charm. So I really appreciated when we were talking before we started, we were talking about the importance of altering people's life trajectories. Mm-hmm. So this is very interesting. It's about now that we have the information technology at our fingertips and we can do something like get uh, a dating coach just on demand, there's actually a greater potential for us to um, find someone that we maybe uh, align with at a, at a deeper level, um, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, physically, etc. Mm-hmm. And so for me to invest a little bit more time into um, looking maybe outside of my you know, immediate, what used to be just village, mm-hmm. uh, and now we can look so much further for more diversity mm-hmm. um, in genetics and that seems to be something that is a, a big driver of people coming together to form a biological swirl mm-hmm. as your like offspring of your child so okay so then now if we do invest a little bit more time into doing something like getting a relationship coach and we nail the first maybe 50 messages which span over three days and that keep them engaged and they're super pumped to go out with you that then you have a greater likelihood of potentially landing a better, more aligned uh, partner that for, for your life and for what, yeah. maybe who you end up marrying and having a child with. So this is the big, this is the big deal, is altering people's life trajectories towards better matches. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what we were talking about how it's, it's high stakes. So when you use a, a dating app, you know, they have, you're just swiping and it's very tempting to, to treat it like, I don't really care about this. You know, I'm just bored. I'm waiting in line. So I'm just taking this out and swiping. It's like, stop digging around and take this seriously. Because if you're in your 20s right now, right, you're, you're eventually going to get married. You're going to have kids. So you, you kind of only have one shot to find the right partner, right? It's like a, it's a big freaking deal. Um, it's, I mean, if you had to put a price on it, you know, it's on the order of like a million dollars. It's like a million dollars, yeah. right? So are you really going to pretend that it's like casual to, to just open an app and swipe people? Because, you know, with, if you're in your twenties or if you're single, chances are within the next few years, you're going to be making a huge life decision as to who you're going to date. So when you're busting out that app and when you're typing stuff with your thumbs, it might feel casual, but I think you should, uh, you should give it the seriousness that it deserves. Yeah. This is a this is a very interesting perspective. There's people that come on with the intention of just these uh, desires for like one night stands, the whole mm-hmm. Netflix and chill culture, and then there is also this like very serious, especially with like OkCupid and stuff. There seems to be more of a drive towards um, or Bumble, the more of a drive towards like serious dating, yeah. um, rather than hookup culture on Tantan or Tinder and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So then, okay, so then if you do come in with that intent of having this be more about like serious dating and identifying life partners, this type of stuff, then every single message is actually mission critical. But then we also have Mm -hmm. to remember that, especially like, let's just take, let's just take an example, right? Let's take an example like, um, let's just throw me into the mix that, you know, if I'm trying to build a company, 
-hmm. and I'm also trying to go on some dates. How do I decide to invest tens of minutes mm -hmm. into drafting mm -hmm. these messages Yep. when I don't even know if these people are going to go on dates with me? Yep. And then I also am trying to build a company and climb up the hierarchy mm -hmm. and become a better and better mate mm -hmm. for these potential partners. Sure. So yeah, what are your thoughts about that? So you have, you have a certain amount of resources that you can invest into you know, attracting and finding a quality mate. You have a certain amount of total resources. And let's say in terms of time, let's say you have uh, two hours a week that you can devote toward dating total, uh, which is not very much time if you're serious about doing it. You probably need more time than that. Um, but even if you only have two hours a week, it's like, okay, so you can argue, oh, I only have two hours a week, so I don't have time to be like spending 10 minutes on a message. But I mean, what's the alternative? <laughs> what's, uh, how do you do it without spending the time? Maybe the alternative is something like, like really um, focusing on like self-work uh, mm -hmm. uh, and becoming a better and better um, mate that's higher and higher up on the hierarchy mm -hmm. and then it becomes a little bit easier and easier to attract um, candidates for dates mm -hmm. um, and sure. then you're not chasing but rather people are coming to you sure yeah so you know it's definitely uh, a lot of people will prefer you know richer mates right so if you're working hard at your career and suddenly you know your income goes up significantly that is gonna, you know, that's gonna help in your dating life, right? If you're going on a date and you're able to, you know, buy as many drinks as you need, you know, go out to nice meals, like it's no problem. That's definitely a strength um, if you can do that. And, uh, you know, for, for both sexes. If I mean, you have a nice apartment or a right, home or exactly. whatever it is to bring your date back to, this is also a mm -hmm. huge deal. This is a big deal across the world as well. Yes. We just came back from doing partnership interviews in China, and this is a sure. big deal for a mate, for the man to have a piece of real estate. Totally. It's a huge deal, and grandparents are funneling money mm -hmm. into their child to have yes. uh, a property to become a better choice for a mate. Mm -hmm. So there's all of these different yes. pieces. So the key here is ROI, return on investment, right? What do you have to spend and what do you get back? So let's say that you're, uh, you're like fresh out of college and the best job you can get is uh, paying you $40,000 a year. So if let's say you go to a coding boot camp, right? And it's like a six month coding boot camp, and by the end it can teach you to make six figures, uh, right? So it can more than double your income uh, for, for three months. Well, that's probably a good investment for your own life as well as for your dating, right? That's, that's just a great ROI, it's a great return on investment. Now, let's say that you, you just hate computer programming, you don't have access to a programming boot camp, so that path is closed to you. Um, and you're making $40,000 a year and you wish you could make more, but you just don't really have a reliable way to make more fast. Like maybe you can work overtime, you can bust your ass and you can make, you know, 50,000 instead of 40,000, but then you have like no time. So you're not going to get a high ROI trying to increase your income. But if you work on your text messages, right? If you spend a few extra minutes a day on your text message, that could significantly, that could actually increase the number of quality dates you get by like 50%. Right. Okay. Interesting. So if you find yourself maybe um, closer to like, let's say the middle of a financial hierarchy mm -hmm. and you don't see yourself with a lot of upward movement, um, that if you work on uh, investing maybe a dozen or more hours into your uh, messaging game, mm -hmm. um, you can potentially procure higher level mates. Right. Um, okay. Okay. There's so many strategies, right? And and you just you you just want to see what strategy is going to get me the biggest results the fastest. If you're somebody who, uh, if you're a very outgoing guy, 
right? And, uh, and you look good. Maybe, you know, maybe if you've been working out, you got muscles, maybe what you should do is, you know, hit the bars, right? Hit the bar scene and, and, uh, and chat people up, right? That might be your best strategy and forget about texting and entirely work on chatting. And in person. And that's an in-per- that's in-person, in-person dynamic. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, versus the yeah the message. Right now, if you're an introvert and you're going to bars and you're trying to get better at talking to people mm-hmm. at bars, mm-hmm. my advice would be write it off. Just accept that you're not good at talking to people. The same way as like the person who doesn't have a path to a higher income. It's like okay, don't worry about the income or don't worry about uh, uh, being attractive at bars. Just accept that you're going to be in the corner of the room nursing your drink and not talking to anybody, and that's gonna, and talking to your friends, and then you go home, but you're a monster on Tinder. That's okay, <laughs> right? It's okay mm-hmm. to just play to your strengths. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, I like all of these different um, aspects that we're combining. We're combining socioeconomics with the biology and hierarchies along with um, time constraints, along with um, social sociability and the information technology. So it's actually interesting. Relationship Hero kind of incorporates all of those fields right. together. Um, and so really there's there's got to be a really uh, good amount of, of, uh, of thought that goes not only behind um, uh, someone that's aiming to uh, get into the dating scene to know themselves, um, but also for when they do decide to use a platform to know, um, like Relationship Hero, when they figure out, okay, well, what kind of a what kind of what kind of advice am I even looking for from a relationship coach? That mm-hmm. the, how are they going to help me with what I'm trying to achieve with my dating game? So you gotta mm-hmm. you know go in knowing about. But then, like you said, you guys also have you know you're going through all of these countless. Um, you're doing you're, you're making hypotheses and you're testing them about what is most effective, um, which I think is also really interesting. That's super interesting data. You guys yeah. are developing a big amount of interesting data, and so for you, yeah, for you guys to be able to run really strong analysis on that data, pattern recognition on that data, and um, and figure out what could further optimize people's success, will then make more recommendations uh, for you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, referrals from people towards you. Interesting. And so Relationship Hero is a free download, but then it costs money to use. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you basically pay for the coach's time, um, pay per usage. So you could buy, for example, like a pack of uh, four hours worth of coaching credits and they never expire. So Mm. you can just get coaching anytime until you've had four hours. Then you got to buy more credits. What are the increments uh, in terms of... Can I, do I, can I only use an hour at a time or can I use 30 minutes at a time? What's the smallest yeah. increment? Uh, there are actually no smallest increments. So it's just very flexible um, and you can just come and go. You can get five minutes at a time. Uh, we're, we're here for mm. you. You know, it's a modern convenient method. Okay. So I can just, I can just, uh, <clears throat> I can just uh, text into the, to the relationship hero number and then just say, mm-hmm. you know, here's my screenshot of my conversation. Exactly right. Yeah. And you then, can text one screenshot. Yeah. And exactly. then the, I'm getting a reply saying that, Hey, try this message, see what happens. Yeah. That could work. Okay. Stuff like that. And then that maybe cost me three or five minutes of exactly, my total yeah. budget that I have of four hours. Exactly. Okay. Yep. Now the coach's three minutes is going to be a lot more effective, most likely, unless you're really good at this getting the coaches three minutes is probably going to get you a better result than you spending even 10 minutes on it. Which again is really 
interesting. We were talking about the amount of time that if you're trying to build a company in climate hierarchy, well, why not, in this case, outsource mm -hmm. some of this uh, to science and to uh, interpersonal relationship analysis. And mm -hmm. so just uh, feed that data in, try and learn from it as mm -hmm. you're you know, feeding it in. And, uh, and then increase your efficacy at the same time. Yeah, Exactly, and if you're trying to play to your strengths, there's a lot of people who are like, I'm comfortable on a date when I'm talking to the person, I'm uncomfortable texting. So should you invest in teaching yourself to be comfortable texting? Or should you just use your money, right, to pay a coach uh, to advise you as to what to text, and then you get into your comfort zone, because once you get on the date, that's really where you're already really good and you yes. really uh you know you really click with the person in real life and yes. so yes. it's all about uh using your strengths and then just kind of having somebody else compensate for your weakness i mean that's a good strategy to how to be successful totally yeah yeah coming again to the know thyself yeah if you're best in person follow a strategy like that yeah mm -hmm. okay so this is great so this is all on um relationship hero and again, relationshiphero.com. Um, for those that want to give it a go, give it a go. Tell your friends, um, people online about it. Get talking about it. That's get using it. It's very interesting to um, hear about. Let us know your thoughts in the comments also about how it's going with you uh, and using the platform. Liron, let's talk about um, also your interest in two organizations that you're an advisor for. The Machine Intelligence Research Institute and also Center for Applied Rationality. And tell us about, this has been a long time, both you've been involved with for seven years. Mm -hmm. It's a long time. So why did you get involved in those two? And um, yeah, let's start with that, why? Sure, yeah, so I've actually uh, been very interested back uh, since back in 2007, uh, even before those organizations existed. Uh, I was reading uh, Overcoming Bias, uh, which was a blog about rationality. Uh, and then lesswrong.com, um, and I was uh, spending a lot of time with uh, some of the pioneers of the modern rationality movement, basically. Um, and what it appealed to me is just, it basically uh, helps you clarify your thinking, right? So there's a bunch of people out in the world trying to uh, think smartly, right? Trying to do science, trying to build stuff, um, trying to you know, learn about themselves. Um, so everybody's trying to be smart, but our brains weren't really made by evolution to necessarily be that good at thinking. They were made to be that good at like arguing with each other, fighting, going to war, right? Um, having sex, right? So the brains we have aren't really designed to think that well, unless it's for specific applications. So it's kind of like thinking really well, it's a little bit like trying to play the piano with your foot. It's like, yes, you have toes, you can use your toes to hit the keys, but your foot is not really like a general you know, manipulator of keys, it's more like it's good for walking. You know what I'm saying? So that's kind of like using your brain. Uh, it's using your brain to try to like figure out, you know, what's the nature of reality. You can learn it, but it's, it just takes training, right? So the thing that appeals to me about the Center for Applied Rationality and Machine Intelligence Research Institute is uh, their whole reason for being is to uh, work on how to break down these problems. Like the Center for Applied Rationality, it's like, what's the best way for two humans to arrive at, uh, uh, at a correct, like to disagree and arrive at a consensus, uh, to go from a disagreement to a consensus. Um, you know, cause that should be possible a lot better than people do it on Twitter. So they're researching that. Or like Machine Intelligence Research Institute, uh, they're researching the question of like, well, machines are gonna get smart. Um, so how do we make sure that machines who are smarter than us are still uh, doing stuff that we want them to do? Because once they're smarter than us, 
if they weren't programmed right to begin with, there's not necessarily an off button at that point. Okay. So let's start with the first example you gave. How do we have better conversations? Sure, yeah. Um, which you gave this example of Twitter, which is yeah. which is literally the one of the worst. I just it's just becoming more and more evident that the social platforms are polarizing. They have echo chambers. They're mm -hmm. based on non-nuanced thinking, binary thinking, cognitive ease, tribalism. I mean, it's just endless. Um, the the business plans are tied to. Um, the attention economy. Sure. Um, there's so many issues with those platforms, and uh, mm -hmm. there's even when you do do something like meet in person mm -hmm. with someone to have the in-person conversation, that's usually going to be a much easier place for you to do something like mm -hmm. list out the you know steel man, list out the person's um, thoughts about mm -hmm. uh, a topic like healthcare, and then you list out your points about healthcare, mm -hmm. and then you try and find the nuance and you know this type of stuff. Sure. Yeah. So you mentioned steel manning, like that's you know the opposite of straw manning, right? Is where you somebody says something and you think that their argument's a little weak, but you help them out and you give a stronger version of their own argument. And sometimes they'll agree that that's really what they meant, and sometimes they'll uh, they'll switch to your steel man, and and that's like that's considered you know good form when you're arguing with somebody and you're trying to argue against the strongest version of their beliefs. Uh, and that doesn't happen very much on Twitter because Twitter is all about you know hitting somebody with a zinger, right? You hit them with a zinger and then you just ignore them, right? And that's like a good strategy on Twitter because you can get a lot of likes on your zinger, and then if you ignore them, it's like who cares? Because you don't, you can just leave the game, right? And so Twitter doesn't encourage you know the kind of good rational debate that the uh, Center for Applied Rationality is trying to encourage. Uh, and in addition to Steel Manning, they give you a few other tools uh, that are really useful. So one of them is called double crux, which is a, a tool when you're arguing with somebody where um, it's related to what we were talking about uh, before the taping, which is if you and I are arguing, I can actually give you what's called the crux of my uh, disagreement, which is like, this is the thing I currently believe, where if I could just change my mind on that, then I'd stop disagreeing with you. And then you can focus on convincing me of the crux. Uh, whereas most people come into an argument like it's a battlefield and it's like, I just have a bunch of weapons to shoot at you and everything you say at me, I want to like slap down. Whereas I'm like, no, no, this is my Achilles heel. It's, it's, it's right here. here. This is my Achilles heel. If you want to shoot an arrow at that thing, I welcome it because if you change it, I'll change my mind and then we'll agree. And then you do the same thing to me. You tell me how I can change your mind. And if we both do that and we're both uh, focused on uh, kind of flipping the other person's crux, uh, that becomes a, a more productive, you know, it's, that's like a path toward an agreement. And in theory, there's this thing called uh, Oman's Agreement Theorem. Uh, in, it's a theorem of, uh, I think, Bayesian probability. Mm. And it's a theorem of like, if you have uh, two artificial intelligences, two intelligent agents that have disagreeing beliefs, uh, there should be a process where they can uh, share their disagreement and, uh, and arrive at a consensus belief. Yes. Like there's no reason why two people who come in with a disagreement can't walk out with a shared reality. You know, that, that should, in theory, yes. be possible. Yes, unless the rationality is coming from the organ of the brain, which is very more, more difficult than AI agents that are um, mm -hmm. based on uh, computer logic. Yeah, well, yeah. so there's, there's a lot of problems with the human brain that make it uh, not em so easy to emotions. implement. Yeah, it's emotions, and it's also just the fact that, like, I might believe something because I've gained a lot of intuitions about it. You know what I'm saying? So, like... I imagine a firefighter who's who's done 30 years of firefighting and they could be like, 
I don't know why I believe this, but I think this house isn't safe right now. I can't tell you why. It looks like everything about it is safe, but I think we should exit the house right now. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they'll be right and the house collapses. And like, I don't know how I knew that. Mm-hmm. Um, so these kind of, a lot of times your brain will have a belief that it's built up and you can't just, you can't give a full data dump of mm. why that belief exists in your brain. And that's one of the confounders of trying to do uh, the perfect uh, Oman's agreement theorem between two humans. AI agents don't have intuition quite yet. So it's not that they don't have intuition. Agents might have complex, like if I build a super intelligent artificial intelligence, it might have quote unquote intuition built mm-hmm. out of all the complex data it's processing. Yes. But it can give you a memory dump, right? So the human brain, I can't plug in a flash drive into my brain yes, and get yes. a full readout of what's in my brain. That's the problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's very difficult to take my uh, my top uh, three points on uh, on healthcare or geopolitics, mm-hmm. and for me to just be able to like recite them at any time. Yeah, and um, not only recite the points, but recite the whole mental structure that makes you believe the point. If I say why do you believe this, you might give me a couple of reasons, and I might even slap down the reasons to some degree, and you could be like, well. I don't think you've slapped on everything. I still think I believe this for some reason. And you might have a good reason, like the firefighter, right? And one day we'll be able to scan your brain and actually, uh, you know, and, and actually report what's going on in your brain, the structure of your belief. And we'll be like, okay, it looks like you actually do have like a well-trained neuron model of like when houses uh, break down, even though you couldn't put it into words. Mm-hmm. Um, so one day you'll be able to do that. And certainly any artificial intelligence will be able to do that because the building blocks that we make the artificial intelligence out of, the building blocks will be like, we'll use like, you know, flash memory, right? And we'll, we'll just use components that are easily dumped. Like a neuron just doesn't have a, a flash drive interface the way a computer does. There's proposals for this chemoelectroconnectome, which I think are so fascinating. Seeing if you can actually identify like your belief on geopolitics with a specific array of a thousand or ten thousand neurons sure. and their connections and the neurotransmission yeah. happening between them. This is very interesting. I like how you also mentioned uh, the Achilles heel. I think that was a very interesting point going into the yeah. conversation. You should and... you should expose your own Achilles heel intentionally. I mean, if yes, your goal yes. if you're if you're trying to do rhetoric, right? If your goal is to win the debate and impress an audience, well, then just give them great sound bites, right? It's like we're not. I, I can't give you the ultimate techniques for that because that's not what I care about. My goal is to walk away with the best beliefs, right? So if I'm walking into an argument and I am in fact wrong. The best thing that can happen to me in the argument is to lose, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Because it's actually winning in terms of uh, improving my beliefs. Changing your mind can be winning. And that's a very important uh, thing that many people uh, can better embody. That's a good one. Exactly. And there's a, there's a nice pithy saying about it, which is not every change is an improvement, but every improvement is a change. Mm-hmm. So there's clearly a lot of improvements that I can make between my current mental state and the mental state where I only believe a bunch of true things. Like there's clearly a bunch of changes that I can make. I don't know exactly what the changes are, but every time I go into discussion, I'm open to making the changes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe a good example for this Achilles heel would be something along the lines of like, you can maybe say like, uh, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, open, I'm open to the concept of an idea of a basic income. Um, just uh, show me how it would uh, help uh, people continue to find deep meaning and purpose in their day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so you kind of, oh, okay, let me, let me come up with my points around exactly that to, mm-hmm. to help you. You're right. And, and you might say something like, look, this is, this is my sticking point. This is my crux. If you were to slap down my crux or change my belief about my crux, at that point, my, my overall view would shift from being anti 
to not sure. And then if you flip this other thing, I might go from not sure to being pro. So you can even say like, it's, it's kind of like painting targets on yourself. Like, hey, if you knock down this target, this is the effect it'll have on my belief. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, the art of outstanding conversations and of nuance-driven conversations and of uh, being receptive to changing one's mind uh, and for the future of taking uh, these memory dumps, I think is very, yeah. very interesting as well. Um, yeah, at times these uh, 3,000 or more now Evernote files that mm -hmm. I have are trying to figure out a way maybe to do something like make a memory dump and then parse them for key points and then make knowledge mm -hmm. graphs and turn them into movies and TV shows and books and all this different kind of stuff. And so this is all very interesting. How can we take the, the top, you know, 1% of, of information that you're currently storing in your memory and how can we visualize that information and uh and your worldview how can we actually visualize your worldview right now and uh and all these little like achilles heels and mm -hmm. uh your top points all this type of stuff okay yeah there's a lot of important dynamics that go into this art of outstanding conversation i like how 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 you find it to be such an important thing it is as questions are a way to probe reality and there are a way to have really good uh, nuanced dialogue with each other to augment our worldviews and so it's very very important to know how to have that uh, functioning quite well in one's life to yeah exactly smarter. and I think the key is just to understand that, like the brain you know again we're repurposing it to be this truth-seeking instrument like evolution didn't give a crap about whether your beliefs were true about the universe. Like there's nothing in, in your brain that makes it natural to go and discover, you know, that that's time and space is four dimensional and that actually causes gravity. You know, like Einstein's uh, general relativity, there's nothing in the human brain that gives a crap about general relativity. That was basically us going way off course and like, and just being like, you know, taking our foot and be like, I'm going to play the piano with this. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, if I do a bunch of toe exercises, I can start playing the piano with my foot. It's just not what the foot is designed for, right? The brain is not designed to go learn general relativity. That was like very much like a bonus that we repurposed it for. Mm. Interesting. So the nervous system itself just being purposed for having uh, parsing environments for the most uh, important stimuli and then related to uh, reproduction and food and right. water it's, it's an organ, and right? The foot is an organ for walking, right? The brain is an organ for winning arguments, having sex, hunting. You know what I'm saying? Like that's what the organ is for. The, there was never, uh, it's not like our ancestors learned about general relativity and that's why they're, you know, the, the smarter ones survive. It was just, it's just a bonus, right? Like I could play the piano a little bit with my feet, right? But that's not what my foot is for. Hmm. Interesting. So all of these complex conversations that we are having with each other about political philosophy, maybe the brain wasn't actually... The so the brain important. was designed to play politics, right? But politics in a hunter-gatherer tribe when the brain evolved, the politics was like, hey, 
Should we go and, uh, is this person committing treason to the tribe? Is this person being too selfish? Should we go and steal back some of his meat that he hunted? Should he share more of the meat with these other families? Or like, hey, this guy, should, should he really be allowed to marry this girl? Should we kill him? Should we banish him from the tribe? Should we send him off to war? So these are all actually politics. So, you know, humans are a social species. You don't have uh, loner humans, right? They all depend on all the other humans in their tribe. But our so, scales, is are you getting to our scales? Oh, well, if you're talking about, yeah, national, the fact that we're all interested in national politics is definitely uh, a very weird situation to be in, especially because you know, we have so little influence about it. Um, so I, I agree, like you are seeing uh, a disconnect where we all think that tribal politics is so important because it really is when there's, you know, 50 people in your tribe, gossiping about every little thing that's going on is actually important and you can actually influence it. Now, when there's uh, 50 people uh, in the White House and, uh, and, and then there's 300 million people uh, gossiping about it, um, that is just a huge waste of energy and like a, a very disproportionate use of energy. So that's definitely a, a pretty messed up situation we're living in. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the, the, so it's almost as though over time the brain's uh, involvement with its, uh, the brain's involvement in political philosophy was initially, uh, as we were evolving as a species, uh, more about our tribe and more about um, the small nuance within that. And now having 8 billion humans and exponential technologies and all these types of things, we're way out of proportion with our scales. And we're also mm -hmm. trying to do uh, you know, the marriage of quantum mechanics and general relativity. We're trying to um, to understand the ultimate nature of reality and what the creation of this universe is even for. And so these things are just like way different than resource allocation within a tribe. Should yeah. we give Johnny two apples and Sarah mm -hmm. three? When yeah. you think about politics as like the human mind thinks that all politics is office politics. Right, so like think about like the petty crap, like who gets access to the fridge, you know what I'm saying? Like all of that stuff or like, oh, this guy's project is getting promoted because he's close with the boss. Like those little things, that used to just be the same thing as politics. Again, in the scale of like the office or in the tribe. Exactly. Yeah, anything past that is already like really separating our um, from the brain quite far again like the toes playing the the piano yeah no exactly it's it's a weird situation to be in interesting i like i like this analogy of the the brain um kind of being thrown at all these different things mm -hmm. when um the use case of the function right. is so much more limited than all of these additional right and, and there's so many people who are like oh listen your brain knows the answer it's like really does my foot know how to play the piano because it's if you there's a fundamental mismatch right between the the ideas that we're trying to think about today and what our brain is designed to do. So we should all realize that it's we're in a weird situation. And if you want to thrive in a weird situation, you need to do weird techniques. So for example, if we're all toe pianists, we better all start doing really hardcore, hardcore toe exercises, right? That is how to thrive in the world where everybody's playing the piano with their toes. And that's what's going on here. So like you can't you can't expect to like intuitively know the answer. It's, it's so bring it back to relationship hero. Everybody's like, listen to your heart. Well, does your heart really know about like, you know, relationships in, in the modern world, right? Where you can like move around a lot and, um, you know, there's everybody's on their phones and there's, it's not like there's no arranged marriages, right? You're like, everybody's fending for themselves and people are flaky. It's like, does your heart really know all that stuff? 
There's a lot of variables to calculate. Yeah, does your heart, how well does your heart know information technology? Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, okay, and I like this. It's been interesting. How about the, on the Machine Intelligence Research Institute, what are your thoughts about building super intelligence that's aligned with um, maximizing uh, prosperity and decreasing existential risk? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, the the thing is, once you start talking about super intelligence, it's uh, it's just very it's what we call sensitive to initial conditions. Because the thing is, once you once you get the first super intelligence going, um, it's just uh, it has such a big impact on the future. It's like everything else you want to know about the future will come back to the question of like, well, how did the first super intelligence or super intelligences get going? What were their initial conditions? Because if you know, if an evil genius was hell bent on destroying humanity, and so he programmed the first super intelligence to destroy humanity by making nanotechnology that just eats through the whole earth and then we're dead, right? Like that would definitely determine the future of humanity is the fact that somebody pulled that off. Um, so it's kind of like the whole, the whole evolution of the future is being squeezed through this very narrow, uh, this narrow future outcome of like what's going on with the initial conditions of super intelligence. So you asked about, you know, saving humanity and, uh, you know, making, making people thrive uh, solving a lot of our problems. That's all great. But I mean, funny, the discussion tends to like first focus on like, how do we not accidentally make like a hell? <laughs> like mm-hmm. we're pretty happy with not making a hell. Like that's like a good first standard, but there's a whole separate discussion of like, okay, well, how do you go from earth to heaven? Right. Forget about avoiding hell. Let's go from earth to heaven. And there's a whole discussion about that. Like what does heaven actually mean? People are very, uh, there's a, there's a big lack of creativity when people think about heaven. Uh, it's, it's not that interesting. And there's, there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, for example, if, if you look at the dials that we have in our brain, the dials for pain versus pleasure, mm-hmm. um, for example, like sexual pleasure, like sexual pleasure, you can turn that dial up reasonably high, but the torture pain, oh my God, it's, it's kind of like you can go up to like floor five of pleasure, but the basement has like a thousand, there's like a thousand basement levels. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. it goes from like negative a thousand to five, right? That's, that's like the elevator of, uh, of pain and pleasure. Uh, and the reason is just because pain has so many useful functions, you know, evolutionarily, right? It just tells you like, no, don't do this, like avoid this. This is horrible. Like this will disable you, right? Because pain is like, hey, you can't, you're going to completely destroy your chance of survival. Whereas pleasure is like, yeah, great. You're doing well. You know what I'm saying? It's like, keep doing that. Um, there's, there's, or rather, I guess to be more precise, there's, um, there's more ways to instantly have game over than to guarantee success. Like if I have sex, that's really, really good, but it's for my genes, but it's not as good as the badness for my genes of getting my wiener cut off, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So you're never gonna have sex that feels as good as getting your wiener cut off feels bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And there's thousands of examples of your yeah, exactly. There, there's just, there's more body. ways to yeah. screw yourself over, and there's no ways. There's no evolutionary way to help yourself more than you can hurt yourself. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the conversations are both around the uh, the initial. Uh, uh, a programming ethic and philosophy and morality and then where that's going to develop out to um, which seems to be the one of the most important points because that then both talks about the prosperity function as well as avoidance of of uh, malevolence and other sure issues. yeah so you talk about the prosperity function to build into the ai so like i said a lot of the focus is just like man, how do you just, how do you even make the prosperity function that's anywhere near what humans care about, right? Because the moment that you flick on like a randomly chosen AI, it's like, oh, hi, I'm a randomly chosen AI. 
let me just you know get myself let me just recharge my battery okay in order to recharge my battery i'm just going to use all the atoms in the earth as energy like oops and i know that sounds crazy but like it turns out to like be like a really easy mistake to make once you once you like uh dive into it like or maybe something like uh the 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 agent's function is about maximizing happiness and so then there's um, some sort of uh, oh well i learned that to be to help people become happy they need access to fresh food and mm -hmm. so then there's a lot of food that's being um, made and so be like how do you optimize it so that it knows that well we eat about three times a day we don't want to turn um, all of the San Mateo at Crystal Springs Reservoir mm -hmm. area into a uh, strawberry field we want to keep it sure uh, I mean even the stuff you're things. describing though is still stuff like you know, it's not that bad text. Like you're talking about like, oh, it's not doing optimal zoning, but it's like, if it's, if it's doing zoning at all, as opposed to like destroying the world, that's pretty good. Um, it's <laughs> yeah, I just, I, yeah, yeah, that's funny. That's funny. I, we, we, we need to be in that, in that, um, that latter park of, uh, of just making it so that this whole like destroying the world thing is like just so, um, out of the question. Um, yeah, so, and I, so I haven't really made a strong argument. Like I, I keep referring to the idea that like you flick it on and it accidentally destroys the world. And I, I don't have off the top of my head like the strongest argument why that's true, but it, there are a lot of convincing arguments. So one thing is just like, if you try to write down a very precise wish for the most basic thing you want, like if my house is on fire and my grandma's in there, I wanna rescue my grandma from the burning building. And you, and you program that into an AI. Um, and you have to be a lot more precise than you think. Uh, because there could be three other people in the building. Maybe it could rescue all four at the same time instead of just one. Um, right, and and you also don't know. Like maybe it actually, maybe it like uh, in order to rescue her, it, it does something where it, it like causes a lot of other damage. Like I don't know, maybe it like poisons her in the process of saving her from the building, and she dies like a little later. But even that, like I said, I don't have like the strongest example off sure, the top of sure. my head. But it's like, uh, yeah, or, or or maybe it. So it, really, the computer systems need to have perception of space-time causality. They need to be um, powerful, dynamically adjusting agents, kind of like we are in a sense, but even well, more rational. And What's interesting is even if you assume that they're very dynamic and they really, they really get it, they really know how to get their way in the world, what's actually hard is uh, making them understand the weird combination of stuff that humans consider like a normal good world. It's actually very complicated to express what we think is a normal good world. So for example, the, the robot or the AI might think like, oh, well, you know, uh, humans like to, uh, to have enough food to eat. So let me make sure they have enough food to eat. But the problem is it's like, where's the limit of exactly how much food? So it's just like, again, do you just turn every atom into food for humans? Because like, oh wait, they also needed like, you know, parts. Yeah, yeah. So the perception system itself would need to be aware of the 8 billion humans, how often they're eating, where all the food is. There's lots of variables to to put into um, the calculation. Yeah, so a, a lot of a lot of uh, what we take for granted is that we don't have like that much power. You know what I'm saying? So if, if I try my hardest to feed myself, that's okay. I'm not gonna destroy the world because I just inherently don't have that much power over the world. Um, but if, if you tell a computer to do it, by assumption, it's so smart that it sees paths. Like every, you know, the whole world is like it's Play-Doh set. Like once you get smart enough, that's basically what you see. You know, from the perspective of other animals, Humans are like, you know, other animals, they think they have their own niches. You don't have your own niches, okay? If humans are here, like we can basically treat any part of the world as our Play-Doh to a pretty high degree. You know what I'm saying? Like you think you're safe in Antarctica? No, we can go there too. You know what I'm saying? Like even though you wouldn't think a human could go there. So similarly, um, 
And, and by the way, when we were like apes, you know, people, a lot of uh, animals probably thought they were pretty safe. You know, like apes are, are not as strong as like, you know, uh, a buffalo, right? But now in reality, if we want to gun down every buffalo in the world, we can, right? Like it's not a big deal for us. Um, and so similarly, like AI, it's just going to be so powerful. It's going to be like, again, yeah, it's not just tell me what you want to see in the world and I'll make it happen. And so that level of power, um, it, that gives you an intuition for why it's like, we really have to be clear about what not to destroy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's rock, um, some of the other questions on the way out. Um, what do you think is the overall meaning of this human experience? <laughs> Um, overall meaning. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, the question is obviously not super well specified in the sense that like, it's hard to even know what an answer looks like. You know what I'm saying? So like, what is an example of an answer that's even valid to a question like that? Right. There are some that we've had that are pretty solid. Okay. What's one? Maximizing consciousness, creativity, meaning, flourishing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Sure. So, um, I mean, the, the thing about the meaning question, right, is like uh, the, you have to put it in the context of the fact that we evolved, uh, you know, in a universe. Um, so like the universe started with no consciousness and then we like we're kind of like accidentally here. You know what I'm saying? Like it's uh, it's kind of like if you I could start a universe from scratch right now. Like, I could, you know, have you ever heard of Conway's Game of Life? Maybe. It's like a, it's a two-dimensional grid uh, of black and white cells and you can make some of them black and some of them white. And it's like an infinite grid. So it's an infinite grid, all the cells start white, you can make some of them black, and then you turn on the simulation and it just evolves by itself where every cell has a rule of whether it turns black or white based on what's going on around it. So it's a completely passive uh, simulation. And if you look at, if you understand Conway's game of life, that is like a model of a universe. Like our universe could at the lowest level literally be Conway's game of life. Like once they unpack the atoms, unpack the quarks, unpack quantum theory, it literally could be running on a Conway's game of life. And it's a useful thing to think about because it's it shows it shows you what it's like to create a universe like everybody gives god so much credit like oh my god god created the universe that's amazing it's not that hard to create a universe okay i can show you how to do it on my computer um and so once you know what a universe looks like and and, and you know <laughs> and you know uh how like you know what happens after that where if you have you know a natural selection dynamic right if you have um molecules that are capable of getting into a cycle where they mutate and and uh evolve into like cellular organisms and, and you get a process of evolution going eventually if you run it long enough you will get a species that gets intelligent that then starts asking the question why right like my baby ezra i was looking at him like he doesn't really have consciousness yet right he's still just he's four months old so it's kind of funny because I'm looking at him. He has he doesn't have any sense of what's the meaning of life, but I know that one day he's going to have a module inside of him that's going to start asking what's the meaning of life, right? Unless I uh, unless he suffers uh, you know brain damage and never develops that module. So this is just how universes play out. That that people start asking what the meaning is. Well, the meaning is that we're you know we're running in this evolving uh, universe or evolving simulation. It's possible that we have simulation gods who created the universe a certain way. But then you can just ask, okay, well, the simulation gods, right? The alien teenagers who started us off in the simulated universe, what was their goal, right? And maybe they had some goal. Okay, but who created the alien teenagers? So it's hard to really answer the meaning question. I feel like it's more of like a perspective question, like putting myself in perspective the, the way I just did. Like I'm like a character in one of these universes. And then you can ask the question like, okay, well, why is there something instead of nothing? Like why, why doesn't every possible universe exist? And then the answer is, well, maybe it does. Maybe every possible universe does exist. And that's called uh, uh, Tegmark level four, the Tegmark level four universe, where 
he thinks that every logically possible universe does exist in some sense, even though it feels like we're only in one of them. So that's kind of as far as I've gotten to the, to the question of like, why is there meaning? And it's, it might not be a complete answer, but it certainly eliminates some of the crap other people are saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can tell that you've uh, jumped around between a lot of the different schools of thought around the subject, which is always really good to, to hear. Um, it is, in a sense, this most first principled question, why are we here? What is the nature of this reality? It's a very important philosophical question. It can give people a good amount of, of diving into some of the most important uh, researches and philosophies and sciences and, and maybe even uh, help guide them towards some sort of actualization in the world that they um, uh, may have been on a wrong path prior to asking themselves these questions. So. These questions can sometimes elicit people to go on more, uh, more aligned paths with their ultimate purpose and destiny. How about how about what are your thoughts about the relationship between free will and determinism? Sure. Yeah. So my opinion is uh, kind of the standard one for the. Um, Center for Applied Rationality, I think uh, maybe not official, but probably most of the people share it, which is like, um, so I think the universe is deterministic. So I do think that it just follows rules, uh, predictable rules, which is nice, uh, as opposed to just having a huge component of fundamental randomness. Um, and uh, and for the uh, for, for the physically knowledgeable audience, I guess, uh, I believe in the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, which uh, doesn't have any randomness built in, so there's no collapse or anything, so it's just a clockwork universe. Um, so that's how I think the universe works, but then the question is, well, what's going on with free will? It's not that hard. Like, imagine watching somebody else, like, doing their thing, like watching another human or watching a smart computer play chess. Imagine watching something do their thing. From your perspective, you don't know what they're going to do, right? They seem like they're, uh, they're driven by desires and they have strategies, but you, it's hard to predict exactly what they're going to do, right? I don't know what the, the chess playing computer is going to do next if it's trying to kick my ass at chess. Um, if you look at your own brain, sometimes you don't know exactly what your own brain is going to do, right? And then eventually you end up doing something. And sometimes you, you even know why you did it because you know you did it at the end of a process. So for example, like, let's say that uh, I'm just trying to, to, to get to a place, right? I'm just trying to drive to my hotel room from the airport, okay? So if I look at the next intersection, I can't tell you if I'm gonna turn left or right, but I can tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna check Google Maps, right? And then I'm gonna look at whatever it says and then I'm gonna do what it does. So I check Google Maps and it says turn left and then I turn left, okay? So I didn't know what I was gonna do, but I just, you know, there was a process, like at the end of the day, I ran the process and then I did it and that's, the free will is what you feel like when you don't yet know what you're going to do or you don't yet know when somebody else is going to do, but you play out a process and then that determines what you're going to do. How do you feel about our disconnection from nature and how that has led to so many of the issues we have in our civilization? Yeah, our disconnection from nature. Um, well, in a sense we are, in a sense we aren't. Um, so like, you know, the, the drive to build up stuff is, is very human, right? I mean, the, the whole, the reason why our bodies are the way we are is because we, we actually evolved together with some of our primitive technology, right? So the reason we're like weak compared to apes, you know, like a chimpanzee baby can completely kick the ass of like a UFC fighter, you know what I'm saying? Not a baby, but like a child. So humans are like very weak. And the reason is just because we're able to, um, you know, use our brains to get around. And the reason our brains are so big relative to our bodies 
is because we we had cooked food, so it's okay. Like we don't we don't have to. Uh, we're able to support this really hungry brain because we just cook our food, and the fire does a lot of the work of the digestion. So we're getting this calorie-rich food. Um, so it's already kind of natural for us to be like coddled to, to some degree. Now the amount that we're coddled today is insane, right? Like even the fact that we have like running water and like quality toilets, like that's already like amazing, right? We're living in Star Wars basically. Um, so. I don't think it's that bad. Like, I think it's mostly just good and awesome. I think that most people's lives uh, can be described as being a pain in the ass. Like most people's lives have been a pain in the ass and today they're much more interesting, much less of a pain in the ass. Um, I think it's great. There's some downsides, right? Like the fact that, you know, we're losing, we just, we don't really know. First of all, we don't know how bad it could be, right? I think a lot of the people who are whining, they just don't realize that they're whining about the difference between being on level nine and being on level 10. Uh, right at when when most of humanity is just on level one, right, and they, and they just need a sense of perspective about like just chill out because we're in a, we're all in a good place. Yeah, and if they had to go live with nature for a week, I think they'd get the idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, yeah, very true. That uh, basic needs, like we mentioned at the beginning, have increased around the world. Simultaneously, are our disconnection from nature, um, the air that we pollute, that we also breathe, the deforestation that we do, that we also, again, is part of our air cycle. Um, sure, but deforestation is only, the main reason deforestation is Leon, bad is like wait, the CO2 there's, issue. There's so much more, right? The pollution of the oceans and the relationship that that has to the water cycle. It's just inevitable that if we continue having ignorance with the interconnectedness of everything on the planet, we're just going to have more and more issues arise. We're moving into metropolises at unprecedented rates where we are disconnected from the cosmos. We're disconnected from the farms. We're disconnected from more and more of the things, although we have the toilets and we have the electricity and we have the gadgets. So we have to really be aware that yes you are right there are these toilets lights gadgets simultaneously the disconnection that you have from never going to a farm or never seeing the billions of stars that these are very serious things that when you throw something away that you don't know that it goes to the landfill we realize the interconnectedness of everything and then that augments our perspective to become better stewards of the planet as we do this evolution at the same time. So I feel like you're, uh, you have a, a mental picture where you're kinda wanna, you want to get back into harmony, right? With nature. How do you feel about that? that but is that, is that kind of, is that accurate? To, is that like a good summary of what you're saying? Let's get back into harmony with nature? While simultaneously building the future. Okay. So my point is, um, Harmony is provably not a thing in nature. Like everybody thinks nature is all about harmony, okay? Imagine you're, imagine you're God. You're trying to design a universe with harmony in it, okay? The last thing you do is you take two organisms and they go hardcore having the opposite desires clashing with each other. And that's what you see all over the natural world, right? So you see the fox who wants nothing more than to catch the rabbit, right? And the rabbit who wants nothing more than to like escape or like poison the fox. You know what I'm saying? They're completely at cross purposes. Uh, and you see that all over the place. Like if you follow this channel, uh, Nature is Scary, right? I saw the other day, I just saw like a bird come over and see a mouse uh, on a cliff and the bird just like keeps nudging the mouse, just nudges him off the cliff and then the mouse falls and dies and then the bird eats it. 
like <laughs> that kind of stuff is going on all over the place in nature okay so us being dicks to the buffalo that's the accurate course of nature there's no effing harmony some organisms put the other organisms in their teeth and chew like it's a freaking bar fight out there in nature and so the planet really is our bitch like it really is we're just trying to optimize how the planet supports us like i don't give a damn how how polluted it is if it doesn't cause us humans a problem so many of the the ancient wisdoms that have been around very very long tens of thousands of years mm -hmm. much longer than our little 25 year mm -hmm. chunks of life a lot of them talk about the harmony including actually what you just described which are yeah. some of those instances of in nature so, at the same time for every one of those instances that you listed there's all of these other examples of nature being extremely gorgeously interconnected <laughs> and intertwined in ways that again that if we vibe with at a deeper level and just really embody and understand that we ourselves can follow similar principles to maximize flourishing so keeping a mentality of like i don't care how polluted it is as long as it doesn't affect me or the civilization right is at the same time can be phrased in a way that is let's have energy unlimited energy for anyone at the mm -hmm. push of a button that is created by the most optimal nuclear fusion mm -hmm. that has again just zero emissions into the planet period and so it's just you know there's always different ways to frame these statements like if a child hears mm -hmm. that i don't care how polluted it is as long as it doesn't affect human civilization i think that's a frame that the child can think well then let's like increase the pollution to a certain mm -hmm. level as long as it you know versus the well let's actually not do that process no look, that that's fine but it's it's a really deep point that nature is not in harmony like that is a fundamental fact about nature if you look at nature it's because I could design you a universe where nature is in harmony. It's not that hard. You just give everybody goals that are pulling in the same direction, and then you what can have you a universe. What do you call the harmony. water cycle? Is that not harmony? I mean, it's an equilibrium, but it's. I mean, harmony. Like, sure. I'm, I, look, you can find some harmonies. I can swing a pendulum, and that's like kind of a nice harmony. But if you look at nature, if you look at animals, it's. I mean, the whole idea of evolution by natural selection is is selection pressure is competition the earth, to the, the death earth, the earth orbiting the star and the seasons happening on the planet sure and the water cycle and even like you described this idea of of biological hierarchies and natural selection that all of these things can be viewed as harmony although well, you are aiming to phrase it in a way that is not harmony. well no look the water say i can show you a lot of things that are nice harmonies but if you go and look at the fundamental uh, dynamic of evolution it is fundamentally an anti-harmony it's like the farthest possible thing from harmony is evolution if you had harmony you'd never have evolution you'd never have selection pressure because the first organism to ever reproduce itself you just get a lot of that that's it you just stay stay with that because there would be no evolution pressure this conversation is coming to this point of which uh selection pressure and natural selection is actually in viewed in your perspective as non-harmonious and in, it is fundamentally non-harmonious and then in other people's perspectives it is actually viewed as part of the harmony of the i mean but, so they're they're just life. not thinking clearly about what's actually going on like they don't realize what it actually is it's a nice thought to say that it's in harmony but if you look at it because again imagine you're god from scratch you're making a universe from scratch 
Show me what a universe looks like when it's in harmony. Show me, show me what life in harmony looks like. Show me what life not in harmony looks like. Now look at our universe. That's life not in harmony. That's really what it is. Life in harmony looks like all the, all the animals have the same goals. All the animals agree that everybody should have their own territory and respect each other's rights, right? Like what we have today in the United States, right? As with a functioning government, the government keeps us in harmony. That's its job and it does it reasonably well. But what you have in the animal kingdom or the whole kingdom of life is really not harmony because you can contrast it with what harmony actually is. This is this is fair. Um, one of the ways to potentially also look at it would be maybe there's a way to design um, as we continue to design universes. Maybe there are ways to design a universe where all of the um, all of what is uh, in functioning is in a deeper level of harmony than even what we have here in our universe. So sure, sure. And then how about, what do you think is the most beautiful thing in the world? <laughs> I mean, I don't have like such a, a well-developed and sense and focus on beauty that I, that I can really tell you what's the most beautiful thing in the world. I think my sense of beauty is, is like the average pedestrian sense of beauty, right? So certainly, you know, beautiful women, beautiful men, I guess, um, you know, just beautiful paintings. I, I just, I don't have any, uh, any particular insight on what's beautiful because I think ultimately the, you know, the, the computation of beauty happens in everybody's brain. I guess it's kind of like asking, asking me like, what's like the best golf swing. I'm like, I don't know. You know, you just, I can tell you that throwing the golf club in, is a, is a bad swing. I can't tell you what's a great golf swing. I guess I have some appreciation for certain beauty of like in my field of software engineering, right? I can tell you what's like a beautiful piece of code a little bit better than average, but at the end of the day, I think beauty is just one of our many things that we like, right? We like beauty, we like good taste, right? We like uh, life and babies and, and uh, knowledge, right? So this, this is just all good stuff that we like. And beauty is one of the things. Do you think this is a simulation? Um, I think it more likely than not is a simulation. It's hard for me to give you an exact probability, but like gun to my head, if I had to guess whether we're in a simulation or not, I'm gonna guess yes. Because, uh, you know, I'm not the, the first person to figure it out. It's, uh, you know, Nick Bostrom's uh, simulation argument. Are you familiar? Yep. Okay. So maybe just to recap it really quick, it's just, uh, it's the idea of like, look, do you think that intelligent civilizations such as our own eventually create computer simulations of other intelligent species? Seems like probably yes, but uh, that's, that's one question. That's part of the argument. And then another question is like, okay, so are we a simulation? Um, and you know, and, and how likely are they to create a simulation? Um, so I may be leaving out a part of the argument, but the basic idea is like, don't you think you and I are eventually going to create simulations if we can, if we have the computing power to? It's like, can we? Do we want to? Will we? Okay, so if that's all true, then don't you think that we're not the first intelligences? Don't you think we're just in somebody else's simulation? Like, why should we think that we're the first? Because there's probably a big chain of people simulating each other. And like humanity in the year 2100 is probably going to be running a simulation, which is itself running a simulation, right? So why do we think we're level one? Like, why, why don't we think we're just an experiment, why don't, an alien teenager playing The Sims and we're The Sims? Like, why shouldn't we think that? Liron, this has been such a fun conversation. <laughs> I really appreciate you coming on to our show. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much for coming it's been on the great, program. Man. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Incredible work that you've been doing throughout your life. It's incredible worldview you've been building out as well, Liron. Yeah, it's been fun going back and forth with you on all these subjects. Thanks, Alan. Yeah, appreciate the you know deep and untraditional questions. 
Yeah, yeah. Got, we got to press into those deep and untraditional ones with as yep. many of the different leaders in the fields as possible. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We greatly appreciate it. We'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments below on the episode. Let us know what you're thinking. Have more conversations with your friends, families, coworkers, people online about the topics that we talked about today, about things like Relationship Hero. Go and give that a go. RelationshipHero.com. Give that a go. Let us know your thoughts about how your experience is going with that and about the the nuance that we talked about regarding that subject and its depth and also all these other philosophical questions we talked about. Let us know what you're thinking in the comments below. Again, relationshiphero.com, also Leron's LinkedIn profile, his Twitter profile, go and give him a follow. Support the artists, the entrepreneurs, the leaders around the world that you believe in. Support them and help them grow. You can find simulation in all of our links below. That's uh, Patreon, PayPal, cryptocurrency, you can design, co-merchant, get paid. All those links are below. And shout out to our co-producer, Ori Shapiro. We love you very much. Thank you. And that is all, folks. Thanks for tuning in. And much love. We will see you soon. Peace.